Would you turn with me, please, to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. I have a friend who is um, somewhat troubled about his relationship with Christ. We were, uh, we were talking just this past week, and he told me that he, uh, he thinks of himself as a Christian. He feels pretty certain that he may be, but uh, he has some questions about the age of the earth, and he can't understand the nature of the Godhead, how one uh, thing can be three and three things can be one. And these things puzzle him and trouble him, and he has doubts. I uh, tried to help him by assuring him that doubts are not in any way an indication of failure of faith, but are rather attacks upon our faith. And uh, that secondly, we don't really need to worry much about our where we are spiritually and how we're doing. We don't need to keep trying to take our spiritual temperature. The thing to do is merely to center upon Christ. And uh, to keep looking at him, to keep coming again and again to him. And in the natural course of, of things will grow. Things will shake out. They'll begin to make sense. And our relationship with Christ will develop into something firm and, and something that's strong. Now, some people think that's uh, a little too laid back, that we ought to worry more about our Christian lives. But frankly, I don't think we should. Because I think that Jesus himself teaches us. In the text that we're going to look at this morning, the main thing is just to keep centering upon him. And if we do, we'll grow. We'll come to love him more, and we'll come to be like him. Now, uh, if you remember last week, I read the prologue to the Gospel of John, which can be summarized really in John's exact words. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word is the Lord Jesus the pre-existent Son of God, the everlasting man, as G.K. Chesterton called him, who, uh, who was God, who was very God of very God, as the creed, uh, creed puts it, no question about his deity, and who was with, the God, uh, with God, in intimate fellowship with him. But uh, he laid all of that aside, and he tented among us, he tabernacled among us, he, he took upon himself our humanity and lived among us. That's the essential fact of Christianity, that God became a man and lived with us. Now, in the prologue, John mentions that there was a witness to the word, John the Baptist. And in verses 19 and following of chapter 1, he picks up the story of John the Baptist and elaborates upon it. Not only was John the Apostle a witness to Christ, but there was a prior witness, John the Baptist. Now, I'm reading beginning with verse 19. This is the witness of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now, uh, John's a, a very interesting character. I wish we had time to just focus on John uh, himself this morning. There are a lot of people that, that believe John came from the Qumran community. The Dead Sea people, the people that gave the Dead Sea Scrolls to us, a little commune down by the, the Dead Sea. And it's very possible that he did. There are a lot of affinities between the, the Essenes, the sect of Essenes that lived in the, in the Qumran community and, and John the Baptist. For one thing, they, they, they lived a very simple lifestyle, 
For another, they were deeply concerned about the spiritual life of the nation and particularly the spiritual leadership of the nation in Jerusalem. Uh, they, they, they loved the book of Isaiah and they read it and they based their ministry upon that prophet. The Essene community did, as did John the Baptist. But there's one marked difference. The, the people at Qumran lived in kind of a Bible city. They, they got together away from the mainstream of life and sort of blessed each other and studied the scriptures so they could encourage each other and wait for Messiah. John the Baptist didn't do that. He, he, he went out into the desert and he began to preach. And just a few miles north of where that commune was located, and he began to began to preach. I used to feel sorry for John. I, I thought of him like St. Francis preaching to the birds. I wondered what in the world he did out there preaching to sage bushes and, and horned toads and rattlesnakes. But uh, actually, John, from the very beginning, had an audience because he went to one of the main thoroughfares in the land of Israel. There was a ford in the Jordan there at Bethany by Jordan. There are two Bethanies mentioned in the New Testament. One is very close to Jerusalem. Another is down by the city, down by the uh, Jordan River. He went to the latter Bethany where there was a fort where people going north to Galilee would cross the Jordan River. As you know, the Jews didn't go through Samaria. They would cross the Jordan, go up through Perea in Transjordan on the east side of the river, and they would go up into Galilee that way to avoid the, the Samaritans. And that was the, the normal place that they crossed the Jordan. And John the Baptist located himself right there on that fort, and he preached to people as they went by. It would be like someone stationing himself out on I-84 about halfway between here and, and uh, Mountain View. And as you drove by, you saw this uh, funny-looking man dressed in a very extraordinary way out there preaching. And uh, he attracted attention. People began to come down from Jerusalem and hear him, and they'd go back and and say, have, have you heard funny old John down there by the, by the Jordan River? Have you heard him preach? And, and people would come down and they'd listen to him. And some of them would be turned off by what he had to say because he was very pointed. He'd, he'd point you out in the crowd and he would say to Roman soldiers, that was the occupying army of Palestine, he would say to Roman soldiers, stop exploiting people. Stop uh, treating people unjustly. Don't be cruel to people. And he would say to tax collectors, don't exact more than you're entitled to. And uh, his, his ministry, as the gospel writers put it, was one of calling people to repentance, to look at themselves and see how desperately sinful they were and how much they needed someone to take away their sin. That was John the Baptist's ministry. Well, uh, as we're told in our text this morning, the uh, religious establishment up in Jerusalem grew very concerned about this fellow John. He didn't have the credentials to preach. They couldn't understand how he had the right to stand out there in the middle of the desert and, and make these pronouncements. So they sent a delegation down. It would be much like a bunch of uh, preachers from Boise showing up this morning and sitting over here where Brian is sitting and, and, uh, and listening in to what, what we're saying and then afterward coming up and asking questions. Now, I don't at all think that all of the questions that were asked John were questions that came from cynicism. I think some of these Pharisees were sincerely seeking after God. We know of some in the gospel. Nicodemus, for example, was a Pharisee, hunting for God with all of his heart. And I think that was possibly true of, of these Pharisees who came down. They asked him two questions, basically. The first, as we read, is, who are you? Who are you? Are you, they said, the Messiah, the anointed one, 
This one that was predicted at the very beginning of, of the human race who would come and, and set things right. The king of Israel. The one who came of, of the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and, and Judah and David. Are you that one who will come and, and cause righteousness and peace to kiss and, and set things right? And John said, no. No, I'm not the Messiah. They said, well, then are you Elijah? Elijah, you know, was one of the few men who, who never died. There are only two people in the Bible of whom it said they didn't die. One was Enoch, who was translated before death, and the other was Elijah. And uh, the book of Malachi tells us that uh, before the Messiah would come, Elijah would come, and he would call the nation back to repentance, and he would he'd bridge the generation gap. He'd cause fathers and sons to love each other again, and he would prepare the way for the for the Messiah. They said, are, are you Elijah? Come back to life again? The Talmud actually said that, they, that Elijah would be resuscitated. He, he would appear again in, in bodily form and would precede the, the Messiah, which that's not what the Old Testament says, but the, but the rabbis believed that would, that would happen. John says, no, no, I'm not Elijah. Now, Jesus later said that, Elijah, uh, that, that John the Baptist came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He fulfilled the prophecy in Malachi of the one who was the forerunner. But he wasn't Elijah, come back to, to live on earth again. He was someone else. So they said, well, well, perhaps you're the prophet. See the questions in verse 21? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. His answers become more terse with every, every response. No. He said, I'm not the prophet. The prophet was the one that was mentioned in Deuteronomy 18. Uh, when Israel came into the land of Canaan, they were gathered in the plains of Moab. Moses was preaching to them. They, they said, we're going to go into the land and there will be a lot of false prophets. How can we discern between true prophets, those that come from God, and false prophets? And, and Moses gave them three criteria. First is that a prophet had to be an Israelite. has to be one of your brothers, he said, because the oracles of God, as Paul later put it, came from the Jews. Secondly, he had to be like Moses. He had to receive direct revelation. He didn't get his information by reading books or hearing other people taught. God spoke directly to the prophets, and, and they then turned and, and, and declared what God had said. Third, he had to be able to predict the future with 100% accuracy. That was the way a prophet was authenticated. He could never miss. He had to predict with, with complete accuracy. And uh, because of Moses' preaching, there grew up the tradition that not only would there be a line of prophets, but there would be the prophet who would come. They didn't realize that the line of prophets terminated in our Lord, who was the prophet. It says in Deuteronomy 18, when that prophet comes, listen to him. Don't listen to the wizards and, and uh, the, the false prophets. He says, listen to him. And when our Lord was baptized, the voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Same words that are used to, in the Greek translation of that Deuteronomy 18 passage of the prophet. So we know that the prophet was, was our Lord himself, as well as the, the line of prophets that 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 proclaimed God's word to, to Israel. And so uh, John the Baptist says, no, no, I'm not uh, not the prophet. They say, well, then then what are you? They, they, they said to him, 
Who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight in the way of the Lord, as, as Isaiah the prophet said. He's quoting from Isaiah 40. John's one of the most humble men that, that, that you can imagine. He, his whole ministry was designed to prepare the way for Christ. He said later, he must increase, I must incre- uh, decrease. He never talked much about himself. When they asked him who he was, he he said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. What are you? He said, I'm the voice that's prophesied in Isaiah 40. Pretty audacious thing to say when you think about it. I'm the voice that will announce the necessity of making the way for Messiah. In those days when a king was traveling cross country, they didn't have uh, super highways. The roads were rocky and rough, and often there were nothing more than tracks through the desert. So in order to get their chariots from one place to another, they would... uh, They would commandeer slaves and people from their own armies, and they would build a road for the king. It's that metaphor that Isaiah is building upon. The Lord's coming. Make a highway for him. John says that you need to make a highway today into your heart for the Lord. Make it easy for him to come. Don't make it difficult. What John was talking about was the sin that kept people from opening their heart to God. I'm so convinced, so convinced, that it is not intellectual problems that keep people from believing in Jesus. Rarely, if never, is that the problem. The problem is almost always a moral issue. We don't want the Lord because we have something else that's sacred to us, something else that we would rather do, some sin in our life that we don't want God to deal with, and that's the thing that that we stumble over. And that's why John said, you've got to make it easy for the Lord to come into your life. You've got to be willing to face the fact that you're sinful and you need help and not defend or justify or protect your sin. Make it easy for the Lord to, to come into your life. So that's what John said. He says he was. He, he wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't Elijah. He wasn't the prophet. He was, he was a voice. The voice that Isaiah predicted who would, who would appeal to the nation to make a way for the Lord into their hearts. Now, uh, we're told... This delegation came from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Where does your authority come from? What right do you have to baptize? Now, John was called, not John the Baptist. That always reminds me of someone who started the Baptist denomination. John was not called John the Baptist. He was called John the Baptizer. Because of the significance of his ministry. Now, as far as we know, the Jews baptized. But they only baptized Gentiles. They baptized proselytes, God-fearing Gentiles. If a Gentile wanted to become a part of God's community, part of Israel, they were baptized as a sign of of the washing away of their Gentileness. The Jews considered Gentiles sinners. They were outside the covenant people. They were sinful. And in order to come inside, they had to wash away their Gentileness in order to become become an Israelite, in effect. Wash away their sin. And uh, apparently they, they, they baptized as a sign of that cleansing from sin. They baptized Gentiles. What was striking about John's baptism in his ministry is that he was saying to the Jews, you Jews are not Jews. You Jews need to be baptized. 
You're not in the covenant people. Just because you can trace your lineage back to Abraham doesn't mean that you're a part of God's community. You need to be cleansed from your sin. And that's why they were so upset. John, they said, "Why, why are you baptizing? John says in verse 26, I baptize with water. In other words, my baptism is merely symbolic. But there's one coming later who is far greater than I, whom he says later will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. All I can do is symbolically cleanse you. But there's one coming who will cleanse you thoroughly, who will take away your sin. John said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. In those days, servants uh, untied, tied and untied their master's uh, sandals. And John said, there's one coming who is my master. I'm not even worthy to untie his, his shoes. And he uses this little puzzle that he very often, uh, he must have used it a number of times. There's one who comes after me who is actually before me. Jesus was his, was his uh, nephew. Or they were cousins, rather. And uh, Jesus was born six months after John. And yet Jesus says, he came before me. He's greater. He's greater than I. And this one, he says, is going to cleanse you thoroughly. He'll take away your sin. And he's standing right here in the crowd. Our Lord had been for 40 days in the wilderness after he was baptized. And now he had returned and was standing in the crowd. I would love to have been there that day. People must have craned their necks and looked all around and looked for someone who was obviously the Messiah who would stand head and shoulders above everyone else and and had, had, a, had, had regal bearing that they would recognize immediately. They didn't know who he was. He just stood in their midst. John says, that's the one. That's the one. He's the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In verse 32, John bore witness saying, I have beheld the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, and I did not recognize him. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. This is the one that will change you. Change is hard. Change is impossible. There, There are all sorts of things that in our past that have such a grip upon us, we can't, we can't stop doing these things. They're habitual. But John says, one is coming who's going to thoroughly cleanse you from the past and give you power to be the kind of person that, that you long to be. Now, he's described in paragraph 29 through 34 by two titles. In verse 29, John tells us that the next day after he said, made this indirect reference to Jesus, one stands among you whom you don't recognize, He said in verse 29, he saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. He pointed him out of the crowd, pointed to him. This individual who looked no different than anyone else in the crowd that day, he said, This is the one we've been looking for. This is the Messiah. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now they knew precisely what he was talking about. Every morning and every evening in the temple in Jerusalem, a lamb was sacrificed. 
But they knew that that sacrifice, that symbolic sacrifice, could not take away sin. The Talmud, this uh, traditional body of rabbinic teaching that built up over the years, says that, that there was a sacrifice in the evening to atone for the sins of the day. And there was a sacrifice in the morning to atone for the sins of the night. But they knew in their hearts that those sins couldn't really take away the sins of the day or the sins of the night. Someone else had to come who would take upon himself the sin of the world and pay for it and take it away. I was talking to a, a woman the other day, and, and I mentioned that uh, this was the practice, to sacrifice a lamb in the morning and in the evening, a lamb to take away the sin of of the night, and she says, well, that explains why the boys, the Catholic boys I used to go with, went to Mass on Sunday morning. And perhaps some of you are thinking of the sins of last night and, and the need to atone in some way for those sins. I was sitting with some members of our staff after, after a board meeting a week or so ago, we're in a restaurant, and in the bar right next to us, it was late at night, and in the bar right next to us, there was a, there was a party going on, a birthday party. And uh, as the evening wore on, they, got, uh, they drank more, and they got more drunk, and, more, and they were louder and more abusive. And, and uh, pretty soon, they began to make fools of themselves, and they shut the bar down, told them uh, they had to stop that. They weren't going to serve any more drinks. They kept getting louder and louder and more abusive. And, and finally, they were asked to leave. And, and I was thinking about it the next day. I wonder how they felt the next day to think back on the night before and the fools that they made of themselves. And you and I have been in situations like that where we have made fools out of ourselves in the evening and woke up in the next morning and we wanted something to take away our sin. Now, this is what John is talking about. This is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. The Son of God, later, as he designates him. Now, uh, John goes on to tell us how he himself came in contact with the Lamb of God. This was an unforgettable day to John. He could never put it out of his mind. The day he met Jesus. On Thursday... And I'll, I'll tell you next Sunday how I, how I came to know the days of the week. On Thursday, John pointed out Jesus in the crowd. On Friday, John pointed him out as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And, and John was there. He heard him. And he started looking around the crowd as, as well as everyone else. And John says... In verse 35, the next day, John the Baptist was standing, and two of his disciples, this would be Saturday morning, Sabbath morning, a morning that was indelibly implanted in, in John the Apostle's mind. The next day, John was standing, and two of his disciples, and he looked upon Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The, the two disciples we know were, were Andrew and John. Now, John's name is not mentioned in the account, as you know. That's John's natural reticence. He doesn't talk about himself. He's a very modest man. But we know he was there. He was standing there with Andrew. 
He was one of the, of the small crowd, the believing remnant, the hardcore of faith that had gathered around John, who had opened up their hearts to the Lord. They were waiting for him. And John says, there he is. And they followed him, we're told. He looked upon Jesus as he walked, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, rabbis in those days didn't teach in schools. They traveled. They, they were, as they say, peripatetic. They went from one place to the next, and they taught. They'd go to a village, they'd sit down in the square, and people would gather around them, and they'd teach. Anyone who showed up, sometimes they'd just be a handful, sometimes a larger group. And they had a, a few disciples that followed them from place to place. The, the, the rabbis described, to their, uh, described their disciples as those who ate the dust of their, of their rabbi's feet. That is, they, they walked behind him and they ate his dust as he went from one town to the next and, and taught. It was a very simple lifestyle. The rabbi would carry a little bag of granola around with him, a few dried figs and a few other things, and a little piece of pita bread. And, and, and if anyone would put him up, he'd spend the night there. Talmud pronounces a blessing on, on the homemaker that would open her home to him. The rabbis moved from place to place. And so that's why they asked Jesus, well, where are you staying? And Jesus says, come and see. That's always his invitation. Just, just check me out. Hear me out. Listen to me. Don't worry about your doubts and fears. Just... Just come and see. And they did. Oh, we're, we're told in verse 38 that Jesus turned and beheld them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and, and you will see. They came therefore and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. About 10 o'clock in the morning. Probably John uses a little different time than the other gospel writers. He uses Roman time or Asiatic time. They use uh, Jewish time. This was in the morning, most likely. They spent the day with him. They sat and listened to him. I would love to have been a mouse in the corner, wouldn't you? And, and, and just listen to that conversation while they, while they ask him questions, ask him the hard questions about life. And, and he listened to them. And he talked to them. It didn't take long, just a few hours. And they were convinced that he was the Son of God, the Messiah. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means... Christ. Notice the wording. He first found his own brother, Simon, with the implication that John, who's unnamed in the account, then went out and found his brother. So there were four. There was Andrew, and there was his brother, Simon, Peter, and there was John, and then his brother, James. So there were four. These were very unsophisticated men, they were fishermen. They weren't theologically well taught. They, they, they lived in a, a kind of backwater to the north of, of the Sea of Galilee. Very simple men. These are the men that changed the world. Andrew went to Scotland and evangelized 
Scotland, he, he is the patron saint of Scotland. Uh, we even named the San Andreas Fault for him in California. Whenever the earth moves in California, we say it's St. Andrew's fault. <clears throat> but he had an even greater impact upon the world than that. And, th- and then we're told how, how Andrew's brother Simon came to the Lord. Andrew found his brother and he said, we found the Messiah. Simon came to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon. The son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which translated means Peter, a rock. Peter was originally named for Simeon in the Old Testament, one of the, one of the sons of Jacob, who turned out to be a very violent, unstable man. Simon, in a sense, symbolized the instability in Peter's character. We, we know what Peter was like. We see him in the rest of the Gospels. He had a bad case of foot-in-mouth disease. He was always doing the wrong things. He was always putting the wrong foot forward. He had a lot of zeal. He wanted to serve God, but he was always doing things wrong. Jesus said, you're, you're Simon. You're going to be a rock. That's what Peter means. Cephas is the Aramaic word that means rock. Peter, uh, the word, our English word Peter is the anglicized form of the Greek word petros, that means rock. We'd call him rocky today, I suppose. That's what Peter became. He became the leader of the apostolic band. He became one of the most stable personalities in the New Testament. That's what Jesus will do for any man or woman who who just comes and gives them a good luck. He begins to build stability into our lives. He begins to make us like himself. And the Lord does not look at you in terms of what you are now, but in terms of what you are to become by his grace. He doesn't want you to clean up your act before you come to him. He doesn't want more spit and polish. He isn't looking for that. He's just looking for an open heart, someone who will come and follow him and listen to him. And cling to him and love him, and he'll change you. It's almost imperceptible. I was looking out my back window yesterday, and we've got a, a small white oak tree in the park right behind us. And the brown leaves are still there from last year, but I notice they're beginning to fall off. And I know why they're falling off. It's because the, the new growth is beginning to protrude, and it's forcing the old leaves off. I've yet to see that white oak struggle. It just, you know, it, the brown leaves just start falling off because the new life is pervading the tree. And that's what happens when you come to Jesus and you give him a good look. He'll start changing you. It doesn't matter how unstable, how emotionally distraught and unstrung you are, he'll begin to make you like a rock as he did Peter. The next day, which would be Sunday, And we'll talk next week about the significance of these days. I am thoroughly frustrated because I have no time this morning and I'm just racing over stuff that I wanted to talk about. 43, the next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Philip uh, strikes me as sort of a wallflower, sort of shrinking violet, rather timid fellow. And and I think Andrew, and we're told in verse 44 that Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. I think Andrew and Peter went to the Lord. They said, go find this fellow. 
He's got a heart for you, but I know he's too timid to approach you. You, you go get him. And there's some of you like that who, who probably think of yourself as so far gone, God can't love you. And, and the Lord is pursuing you just as he pursued Philip. He's trying to, trying to find you. He found Philip, and, and, and Philip then found Nathanael. Uh, in verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He said with a sneer. Nazareth was a little, uh, little cowboy town off, uh, off in the hills. How can anything good come from something like that? Nathanael said. Nathaniel was a, was a skeptic, but he was an honest skeptic. There are some cynics that are simply trying to keep God at arm's length. They don't want God in their life. But there are some, some skeptics who are, who are open-hearted, and Nathaniel was one. Nathaniel said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Notice Philip's answer. He doesn't argue with him. He, he doesn't give him, a, give him a book on apologetics. He says, Come and see. Just come hearing Hear him yourself. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. There's no sham in Nathanael. Questions? Oh, he had a lot of questions. Doubts? He had many doubts. But he had an open heart. And the Lord saw that heart. And that's what convinced Nathaniel. Nathaniel uh, said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now the fig tree traditionally was a place of meditation. It was emblematic, symbolic of meditation and prayer. And I think, although I can't, I, I can't uh, be sure, but I think Nathaniel must have been meditating upon Genesis 28 and the story of Jacob, the old scoundrel, the man in whom there was a lot of guile. He just conned his way through life until God caught up with him. It wasn't until the very end of his life that he quit trying to, to do things in the energy of the flesh and he started counting upon God. And yet God blessed and enriched that man from beginning to end. And I think Nathaniel must have been sitting under the fig tree thinking, it isn't fair. Here I want God with all of my life, with all of my heart, and I can't find him. And my, my, my uh, relative Jacob ran from God his entire life, and God ran him down. And the Lord saw him, and he said, here's an Israelite. And remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile, unlike your namesake back there, Israel. Here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathaniel said, how do you know my heart? And Jesus said, oh, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Jesus was a prophet. He laid aside his omniscience. He did not act out of his deity in the incarnation, but God revealed to him because he was a prophet, the heart of that man. He saw him. He knew his heart. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, as we'll see as we read through John. It's a messianic title. It doesn't refer to Jesus' deity. I have no question about Jesus' deity, but Son of God is a messianic title. 
You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe me? You shall see greater things than this. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you shall see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and and descending upon the Son of Man. The reason I think Nathaniel was reading Genesis 28 is because that's the story of Jacob's ladder. Remember the story? Jacob was running away from from his home. He's running away from God. He was trying to get as far away from from his family as he possibly could. He's being pursued by his brother Esau, who wanted to kill him. He made his way up to the, the ancient city of Bethel, which has been an old Baal sanctuary and been torn down. There were rocks all over the place. And and he had to get a night's sleep. He was he was tuckered. He'd been on his feet all day. He, he laid down among the rocks. He pulled a rock under his head and he went to sleep. He was scared half to death. He didn't know if Esau was going to catch up to him. And he had a dream. And in the dream, he saw a ramp, sort of like a ziggurat, going up to heaven. And angels coming down and going up from his head. And God said, Jacob, you and your seed are going to bless the whole world. In other words, you're going to be the way that God comes down to earth and brings salvation. And you're going to be the way that that people go to heaven. Spend their time with God. Jacob woke up. He said, me? (laughs) I've been running from God all my life. And you're going to do that with me? He said, surely this this is the house of God. This is where God dwells. This is the gateway to heaven. He sort of missed the point. That place was not the gateway to heaven. He was. He said, surely the Lord is in this place. Now, he didn't realize the full implications of that statement, but the, but the promise, you see, was that from his seed, one would come who would provide access to heaven. And that's our Lord Jesus, who was a descendant of Jacob. And that's why the Lord said, to Nathaniel, is it a, you, you think it's marvelous that I can see into your heart? I'm going to show you something more than that. I'm the way to heaven. If you want to know God, I'm the way. As he said later, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Do you want to meet the Father? Then just stick with Jesus. That's all. Just stay with him. Just follow him. See, essentially, that's what he said to all of these men. Do you want to get to know me? Then just follow me. Just follow me. Just walk with me. Don't worry about how fast you grow. I'll take care of those things. Just just follow me. Just stay with me. Brian and I have a dear friend in Palo Alto that came out of the counterculture. His name is Ted Wise. Lived uh, sort of on the edge for a long time. One of the men who started the free speech movement at Berkeley and eventually the filthy speech movement at Berkeley and just one of the most radical thinking and acting men I've ever known came to Christ and and he often tells his testimony this way. He says, when I get to heaven and some of my old buddies meet me, they're going to say, Ted, how in the world did you get here? He said, I'm going to point to Jesus and say I'm with him. Now, some of you look back on your life and and you see the ruin that that you've that you've left there, the mess that you've made of things. I just want you to know that Jesus wants you to come and 
and spend time with Him. That's the gospel. Just get to know Him. Read His Word. Read His words. And ask God to give you an open heart. I very often just give the gospel of John to men and, and say, here, just, just read it. Just say, God, I don't, I don't know what you are. I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are, but I want to know you. And then read the book. Come and see. Walk with Jesus. Listen to him. Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, I've mentioned him before. Uh, in this series, the, the, the Gospel of John was one of the books that turned him around spiritually. He had, he had turned his back on his Christian faith. And uh, later he came back. He wrote a book called Jesus Rediscovered. And he put it this way. So I, I come back to where I began. To that other king, one Jesus, to the Christian notion that man's effort to make himself personally and collectively happy in earthly terms is doomed to failure. He must indeed, as Christ said, be born again, be a new man, or he's nothing. So I at least have concluded, having failed to find any other alternative proposition, as far as I'm concerned, it's Jesus, or nothing. Let's pray. I know there there are some people here men and women who have been searching all their lives for God. And uh, perhaps you've, you've given up. Well, I want you to know that, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that you can come to the Father through Him. He's the gateway to heaven. He'll introduce you to the Father. Just looking at Him is the way to know what the Father is like. As the Scriptures tell us, no one has seen God at any time, but but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, our Lord Jesus, He's made Him known. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Come to Him and see. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I'm... I'm gentle. He's not hard on us. And I'll give you rest for your souls. You can start that process out this morning by simply praying, Lord Jesus, I want to know you. I want to come to you. And I want to see who you are and what you are. Will you do that this morning? And for those of us that have known him for a time, we need every day to remind ourselves that he's the source of our life. Anything else is idolatry. If we're looking for happiness or satisfaction or peace in any other relationship, our mates, our girlfriends, our boyfriends, whatever it may be, no one can satisfy us but Jesus. It is Jesus or nothing. And we need daily to reaffirm that truth. Lord Jesus, thank you for this reminder again this morning of your understanding heart, for the grace that comes to us because of your love for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.